in a world where most people watch movies and then forget about them. Three brave heroes join forces to watch them again and then talk about them. Join them in their epic journey as they go back in time, a decade and beyond, to revisit and break down films from a vast array of genres. Do these movies hold up over time? Are they classics? Find out on Retro Movie Roundtable. Starring your hosts, Brian Fry, Chad Robinson, and Russell Guest. Coming now to Headphones in Your Ears. Welcome all you lords, ladies, and knights of the Retro Movie Roundtable. Welcome to the show where we watch movies and then talk about them. I'm your host, Russell Guest, and joining me today from the great state of Washington in Spokane is Brian Fry. How are you doing, sir? Uh, good. It's the great snowy state of Washington right now. We, uh, we've been enjoying kind of an early spring up until today where we're supposed to get three to five inches. Uh, we're being teased. Pittsburgh does this every, uh, I don't know, maybe March or April. It makes you think spring's going to be there for like a day or two, and then it takes it away. Also joining with me here in Pittsburgh is third-time guest. Is that pretty exciting? Three-timers club. Meredith Gray Robson. How are you doing, Meredith? I'm doing good. Really good to be on again. Yes, and worth noting, also, creator of that little logo on your iPhone as well. Yes, so, that's true. Uh, yes, we appreciate that. I think it's one of the better logos out there. Oh, I like, well, thank you. Yeah. I'm glad that you guys like it. Why don't we get to know Meredith a little better? Because, you know, we've, we heard some things from her on the Mission Impossible episode as well as the Maltese Falcon episode, but I think you can get to know her a little better. Meredith, what movie do you like to turn on that, uh, you know, you're having a sick day or a bad day? What's going to put you in a better mood? It's probably a Knight's Tale. I think it's it's a movie that, you know, it really picks you up and it's it's got a lot of sense of humor to it, but it's also got some fight and some drive. That's it for me, a Knight's Tale. Brian, if I'm not mistaken, you're a fan of this one as well. Yeah, that's actually, uh, it's, it's a fantastic movie. And oddly enough, it ended up being televised while I was on vacation and made my whole family basically watch it. How'd they go with the whole family? I mean, they thought it was cute. I don't. I don't think some of the nuances in it were, you know, really gathered by them. Like I had to explain, it was you know from Chaucer, and that's who Paul Bettany's character was, and you know this was a, a one of the Canterbury Tales, obviously, comedied up and, and and whatnot. But man, it's a really fun movie. It really is. I I like the music. I like the whole changing your stars message to it. It's really a feel good movie. Now. Maybe one of the reasons you enjoy that movie, Medieval Knights Like Swords, and you are a sword collector. What's your favorite movie sword fight, Meredith? Well, there's one that definitely stands out for me, and it's actually not medieval. It's not Asian, which I like a lot of Asian swords, but it's Pirates of the Caribbean, the scene where mm. Jack and Will are fighting up in the rafters of the blacksmith shop, and mm. they're like balancing and teetering, and it's the music is great with it, and it's just so coordinated and... They are their characters in that scene. It's great. That is a good one. Brian, do you have a favorite swashbuckling moment? Well, if it's swashbuckling, there's probably a couple in Black Sails that I really enjoyed. Um, in terms of sword fights, period, man, I could go Gladiator. I could go... I, most of them are Ridley Scott movies. I'll say that. Well, uh, that's a good thing for today's mm. episode. Yeah, well, <laughs> it is. Uh, mine might be uh, Princess Bride. Oh, that's pretty good. Yeah, that's a good yeah. one. Iconic. Meredith, what is an, an underrated movie? It doesn't have to be the most underrated movie for you, but just name us an underrated or underappreciated movie that you like to defend. 
Well, the one I like to defend the most is the Mighty Morphin Power Rangers. The one from the yeah. 90s. Because people always say, don't watch it again. It won't be as good as it was when you were a kid. But I've seen it several times in the past few years. And it's actually still very good. Yeah, I was still in that right zone where I, I, I went to the Mighty Morphin Power Rangers movie. Mm -hmm. And I, I have good memories. I haven't seen it in a long time. I myself might be a little afraid to watch it, but I have mm -hmm. seen the TV show here and there across the ages, and it's mm -hmm. campy enough to the point where I appreciate it as an adult in a different way that's funny. Mm -hmm. So I don't know if the movie was as campy as the TV show, but the TV show it's... did this like Godzilla thing that I actually yeah, like. Yeah, it's not. It still has the roots in the sort of Japanese big monster movie, but the, the costumes were a really big influence in the, the Power Rangers from the 90s and, you know, the way the Avengers costumes are made now, you know, the intricacy of that and the villain I always like in the Power Rangers. So Yeah. So that's the one that I, I like to defend the most because everybody says it's not good. Is Rita Repulsa still is. the villain in the movie? No. Zed. Zed. No, Lord Zed. it's um, Ivan Ooze. Or Ivan Ooze. Yeah. Oh. Okay, yeah. yeah that, that, and that, he's the best of the Power Rangers villains by far. Yeah, Rita, Rita and Zed are still in the movie, mm -hmm. but Ivan Ooze is the primary villain. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And I'm judging by uh, your reaction on this, Fry, you are a fan of the Power Rangers as well, then. Uh, I can't say that I've gone back and watched any Power Rangers in a long, long time, but I would hope that I would still like the Power Rangers movie. I, I really enjoyed it when it came out. It was, I think, my first introduction to the Foo Fighters. Oh really? Um, <laughs> yeah. What? I, my memory is not serving me. What song of Foo Fighters was on the uh, Power Rangers soundtrack? Uh, hold on. My hero. Uh, I'm assuming. I think so. That I don't want to get this wrong. So give me a second. I'm, to look I'm it up. not sure. The one I always remember is the "Uh oh, we're in trouble." I don't yeah. know what that's called, but it sticks with you. I, I I had the soundtrack, and I remember being like, "Oh, this is pretty good." I just remember the theme song from the TV show, Go, Go, Power Rangers. Yeah. They had like a kind of a David Lee Rothy intro to the movie. Okay. Mm -hmm. Russ, I want to do an addendum here. The soundtrack was my first uh, introduction to Chili Peppers, not Foo Fighters. Oh. And it was, uh, it was higher ground. Conversely, uh, Shampoo did the song Trouble. Okay. Yeah, okay. All right. All right. So the movie today is what, Meredith? It's a legend, directed by Ridley Scott. All right, so not I Am Legend, not Legend of the Falls, just mm -hmm. plain old legend. Yes. Which was a new movie for me, so this comes out in 1985, the year I was born. It grosses $15.5 million, and uh, if that sounds like a lot, it's not because it cost more than that to make it, unfortunately. It still places on the box office at 57 on the year, so it's not horrible, it comes in behind Armed and Dangerous and ahead of Youngblood. And the number one movie that year, another top, or sorry, uh, the number one movie that year is a different Tom Cruise movie, Top Gun. Much better Tom Cruise movie. <laughs> I would debate that. but I would also. So IMDb does not love this movie. It gives it a 6.5. Talking about not loving it, the critics of Rotten Tomatoes give this a 36%. That might be the lowest that we've covered on the show. Uh, I, I'm not... I don't rem I'm not for sure on that, but I think that might be a low. And the audience score, however, and this is this is like more like it's more than double. It's 73 percent. So there's a lot of stratification based on the ratings on this one. It doesn't take any major awards away, but the British Society of Cinematographers give it a Best Cinematography Award. It gets a nomination from the Oscars for Best Makeup, which it that definitely well, deserved. Well deserved. 
Uh, best costume design, best makeup artist, and best special effects uh, all are nominations for the BAFTAs and the British uh, version of the Oscars. So uh, it doesn't win any of those, but that's okay. At least it got some recognition through the nomination process. Meredith, had you seen Legend before? If so, what was your first time like? Well, I had seen it, I think, two years ago, and it was on, you know, one of those periods of time where you get a movie channel for free, and I just stumbled across it. It was in the opening credits, and I thought it looked really interesting. I remember the first thing I saw was the bear at the beginning of the movie. It's a real bear kind of nosing around on some plants, and I thought, you know, what's that bear doing? So I kept kept watching it, and it was very intriguing, and I wanted to stick with it. So pretty much two seconds, and you were hooked. Yeah. 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 Meredith, so mm-hmm. how long had it been since you had seen it? I think that was two years ago, so when I watched it again for this podcast, so two-year gap. Okay, yeah. so you're, it's pretty fresh then. Yeah. Yeah, and hard to say then, is it? do you think it's holding up, at least from the standpoint it was made in the 80s and then you're watching it today? I think it is holding up. There are some elements I think we can get to later that I wish were a little different, but I think it did hold up. Yeah. Now, Brian, had you seen Legend before? Uh, I had not. Uh, before this, this is kind of one of those movies that I've seen in bargain bins or on TV or something where I'm like, I really need to watch that from the beginning at some point because I am a never-ending story kind of fan and it, it looked like it was in that same vein. You would be right. Yeah, so I was uh, I was glad I had the opportunity to finally sit down and kind of say, all right, this is it. I've, I've got to watch it. And how did it go for you? Uh, it was all right. I, I wasn't super thrilled with it. I have watched and been a fan of so many Tom Cruise movies over the years. It was kind of nice seeing him in one where... Where he was in armor with no pants? We'll get to that. <laughs> I've, got that I've got that a lot in my notes. Um, no, I just... This this one didn't do it for me. I guess would be the best way to put it. We'll, we'll go into to okay. various aspects. I was just kind of like... Ah, yeah. So Fry's coming into this a little bit on the cold side. I did not know what to expect. I was, I would like Fry, I like these fantasy era movies from this. And so this hit me in a good spot, but I was surprised. This was a much darker movie mm-hmm. than I ever expected. I don't really think this is for, at least not for younger kids. No, like, I would not say that at all. I don't know what age point you cross. I'm not, I'm not, uh, I'm at the beginning of my parenting road, so... I don't know. I'm thinking more like 10, 11, 12-ish before you mm-hmm. would venture into this one, but certainly not the lower ones like 4, 5, 6, 7 or whatever. So uh, this, uh, it, was a lot, it was a lot creepier and darker and, than I ever thought it would be. So I didn't get exactly what I thought. And uh, I also thought there were some things that could be improved, as, as you, both of you guys were saying, but what I did find was a visual feast. Yes. It is such a good visual experience. I think our co-host Chad sometimes says, uh, I'm not into the look of the movie. It needs to go down well. And, you know, the story is really important for me, but sometimes when the looks and the world that they give you is so good, it's an interesting experience in its own right. It's a visual delight. I'll certainly say that right off the bat. It definitely is, and it's so much better visually, in my opinion, than a lot of the newer live-action attempts at a darker fairy tale like Maleficent and Beauty and the Beast. Um, age, age target is a lot well, different that's on that true, one. That's true, but you could do this look without, without it being as gritty. Now this is something that I'll definitely say to its benefit, and I think this is something that uh, kind of our generation uh, values more, but 
if you can really do a movie more live action than not, it's it's beneficial. We grew up with animatronics. We grew up with like the Jurassic Parks, the Star Wars. You know, like puppets. having mm-hmm. makeup and puppets and Fraggle Rock. I mean, we dig that sort of thing. And they seem to, like, especially with, even Netflix does it now, with um, The Irishman. Like, they're like, let's see how young we can CGI these faces and make it look legit. Like, I'd prefer just to, you know, cast somebody else as a younger so-and-so. Like, I want more real, less computer. Yeah. No, and that, mm-hmm. I think that's one of the reasons why I found this, in a way, refreshing. And it's kind of a fun one to save, like, a, a little one of those from the vault in the 80s. Because you're not going to get a movie like this no. anymore. No, you're not. No. Fun anecdote. Chad and I were talking, and he didn't like this. I'll let you know now. And he's oh, like, no. didn't like this movie. Who is this made for? And um, I said, it's not for children. It's for adults who like dark fairy tales and monsters. So basically, it's made for Guillermo del Toro. <laughs> well, I read something on the internet that said Ridley Scott's original intention was it was for it to be a more art film than a big feature movie, and it kind of turned into that along the way. He didn't get his artistic, you know, sort of avant-garde movie that he'd started out making. Hmm. Well, that, that's a good transition point as we talk about a few things. But i got to let people know there's going to be spoilers from here on out. So we will spoil this movie, and we'll be back after these messages. Good morning, dedicated listener. The Retro Movie Roundtable needs your help gathering feedback, promoting the show, and growing their community of movie-loving fans such as yourself. This classified information is so important, we're only calling on our most skilled officers and agents to handle the case. Your mission, should you choose to accept it, is to go to iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast and leave a rating and review. Then proceed to like Retro Movie Roundtable on Facebook. If at any point in your mission, you need to contact us at base, you may also make correspondence via email at retromovieroundtable at yahoo.com. Should you or any of your friends be caught, killed, or exposed, the Retro Movie Roundtable will disavow any knowledge of your actions. The cassette tape inside your listening device will self-destruct in five seconds. Good luck, listener. Okay, we're back, and remember, there will be spoilers that lie ahead. So if you haven't seen the movie from 1985, Legend by Ridley Scott, we highly recommend you go check it out and then enjoy the rest of this podcast. If you're not spoiler-averse, then sit tight. We're going to go ahead. Now, Fry, if people haven't seen the movie Legend since 1985... Why don't you refresh their memory? In order to bury the world in eternal night, Tim Curry, the Lord of Darkness, sends Blix a, uh, on a mission to kill two unicorns that guard the light and bring him their horns. On his journey, he comes across Princess Lily and her forest dweller love Jack. Uh, Jack takes Lily to see the unicorns unknowingly leading the goblin to his prey. Shot with a poison dart, one unicorn falls to the goblin and and an apocalyptic winter ensues. Jack gathers forest allies, weapons, armor, while uh, Lily witnesses the plan of the darkness to basically settle the world in night. Lily returns to try and help, but like most princesses in this situation, gets captured. Jack and crew then set uh, set out to save Lily and the light. Jack, 
who I will refer to as Pantsless Jack from now on, <laughs> faces several trials on his quest facing a swamp hag, an ogre in a prison in a dungeon, and a randy fairy. Once free of the dungeon, they learn of the darkness's plans and the fact that he can be killed by daylight. They take the ogre's platters in the dungeon slash kitchen to reflect sunlight. Uh, Jack fights the darkness, wounding him, and the reflected sunlight blasts him toward the void. But because evil lives in all of us, he will never be completely vanquished. They return uh, the severed unicorn horn, or alicorn, to the downed animal, reviving it and ending Snowpocalypse. Woot. All right. So right off the bat, there's a lot. Of, there's three different versions of this movie. Mm-hmm. So just for consistency's sake, Meredith, which version did you watch? So the first time, two years ago, I saw what I guess was the U.S. theatrical release on TV. Much shorter. Yes, but for the podcast, I watched the director's cut. Okay. Yeah. What about you, Brian? I rented this on iTunes, whichever one that was. Well, um, <laughs> sorry, it's, it's I didn't. I didn't. Tell, it's easy to tell by the music. If it's Jerry Goldsmith, it's the director's cut. If it's Tangerine Dream, it's the U.S. theatrical. Yeah, did release. you have synthesizers, or did you have a more orchestral score? Uh, synthesizers. Okay, then oh, you yeah. got the American one. Yeah. Okay, and so your yours was shorter, and it's and so I I uh, also watched the director's cut. Which Meredith was kind and lent me. Yeah. So. I will I will earmark that as a possible maybe this is better with this. That's going to describe I think part of the difference because there's a lot mm-hmm. uh, missing. Uh, do, do you have the time difference on those by chance, Meredith? I, I don't think remember. The director's cut is one fourteen. Mine was roughly an hour and a half. Yeah. So, 114 oh. minutes. Yeah, and ours oh, was, gotcha. and then the one the director's cut that we watched was over two hours. Yeah. So. Oh wow. Okay. Brian, I know one of your always things is I want more is usually your change. Yeah, right like, right. You can certainly have more. I will easily roll the dice on this one. I, I've got to tell you, everything felt super rushed on this movie to me, and that was one of my big qualms with it. So uh, if there is more out there, I will absolutely watch more. There's more visuals. Mm-hmm. There's more to feast on with your eyes. And also, I think there's some big presentation differences. Yeah. Um, and even down to how the movie ends is quite a bit different okay yeah in fact while we're going into that now let's just go ahead and do this so brian just basically uh, as you mentioned uh, people you said uh they put the unicorn horn back on which is actually they didn't do that for us I, oh okay i well. thought they did but i maybe i'm remembering the other yeah i i, I really i remember like at the end there's two unicorns and it's like and now the other unicorn's back yeah this is better explained, I think, in the American version. However, you get a happy ending, right, Brian, where uh, basically Lily and Jack run off together into the sunset, right? Yes. We didn't get that happy ending. We no. got, um, we got it, what? It's assumed that she will go back to her life and he will stay in the forest and she'll come visit him periodically. Yes. <laughs> That's what it seems like. Yeah, uh, you know, I'm a princess, I can't... Such a tease. Yeah, I can't be with a commoner, but uh, don't worry, you'll be my friend that I come visit in the woods on The Secret. And he's like, I'll always be here for you. And uh, he runs off into the sunset on his own and then sees uh, his friends like Gump and and the unicorns. Very different, less fulfilling ending. Mm -hmm. So... And then there's the European version, which is kind of the in-between version. It's kind of like the director's cut version, but it's not as long. It's interesting that you're expressing some discontent with this because Tom Cruise himself actually didn't like the American cut. 
Oh. Yeah, and he refused to talk about it for a long time, so. I don't blame him. <laughs> yeah, you've seen both, Meredith, so uh, having gone through both, what would you, which one did you like better? I like the director's cut better. I felt like the story was a little bit better put together, and also the Tangerine Dream score, I didn't feel really fit the atmosphere. I think the Jerry Goldsmith score was better. Just the decade. It was a rough time for yeah. synth scores, I yeah. think. In fairness, I don't like synthesizer 80s music at all, which Brian will totally back me on or, or agree that I don't. No, I pretty much back you up 100% on, on that feeling. Having said that, it could be worse. Like, it's not mm-hmm. the worst synth. Uh, but, yeah. but why you get rid of a Goldsmith score, I don't know. Yeah, I thought the Goldsmith score really felt more magical. Yeah. Than the Tangerine Dream one. I feel like a lot of what was happening in the U.S. Uh, when you have cuts like this where they, what, 80s-fy it? Like, I don't know how else to put it. But, yeah, I, I would say that anything else that they had done would have been a, a greater film on our shores than what the product they gave. And that's true. I believe Never Ending Story had the same deal as well. Mm-hmm. I think we had. I think America got the synthesizer, and I think maybe Europe got a different score. Oh, I, I never say, knew that. I, I want to yeah. say that there's two different versions of that one as well. Uh, I might be inventing that in my head. So take all that with a grain of salt, listeners. You can fact check me. Tell me if I'm wrong. So uh, Roger Ebert did not like this movie. He said it was uh, composed of all the right ingredients to be successful, but it just simply doesn't work. He went on to say that all the special effects in the world and great makeup. Uh, and Muppet Creatures can't uh, save a movie that has no clear idea in, uh, on its own mission and no joy in its own accomplishment. So, Brian, I think a lot of what you're saying, the incompleteness, what are, what are some of the things in the story that you found, huh, that, that's not what I, this, this isn't working for me, having watched the American version. So if I were going to paint it in a picture, what I would say is uh, this movie felt like playing the game Trouble where you, you pop your move and then you move five spaces, but the spaces didn't really feel joined. It just said, and, and now there's a puddle witch. And now they fell into a dungeon. And now there's an ogre. And now they have to escape. Like, it just, it didn't flow. It just seemed like a series of an unfortunate events that happens to this crew. It doesn't feel, and, and that they rush each time to get to the next uh oh, and you know, there's no let's talk about each other. There's no build camaraderie. There's just Jack. What did you do? Oh, you shouldn't have done that. Sure, we'll join you. Oh no, this happened. Oh no, this also happened. The end. Yeah. Now, Meredith, why do you think that happened though? Like, like why why did this happen in the American version? Nobody seems to be happy with it. Yeah, I'm not totally clear on it. I read something and it's. It's always hard to tell the amount of truth to something that you read on the internet, but there was... Oh, oh everything on the internet is true. We read it on the internet. Everything. There was an effort on the part of the American <laughs> studio to make it more appealing to kids. So I think if that's the case, then they probably cut out massive amounts, or what seems like to most people, massive amounts of the movie to make it watchable for kids. Hmm. And also, you know, change some of the tone a little bit. Because sometimes if you remove just a little bit, it changes the whole tone of a scene or something like that. So you lose story, but maybe you make it more palatable for yep, uh, for uh, children. One big difference, <laughs> though, is in like some of the presentation. Like you said, uh, the swamp ogre 
and like the American version has a long lengthy cut uh, scene where uh, Tom Cruise uses his charm basically to like uh, you know mm-hmm. s- like you know he's like a monster as fair well, not a monster but uh, mm-hmm. someone as fair as you and then uh, she ends up talking to him and then he basically tricks her and wits yeah. her into beheading her mm-hmm. whereas the one that Brian got was just he took a swing at it and then all of a sudden he says I did it in disbelief. Oh, really? Yeah. I, I'd forgotten about that, but it's so yeah. much better explained in the director's Yeah, there's a whole long yeah. scene with that yeah. creature. He uses guile and wit to get through it, and if you take that out, <laughs> then it changes the meaning of it, much like Brian is saying. Yeah. Another big difference was, Brian, if I'm not mistaken, you see Darkness's face pretty early in this movie. Yeah, it's almost immediate. Yeah, it's almost an hour before you see him mm-hmm. in the director's cut. Yeah, I think we see his hands yep and we see his silhouette a little bit and then maybe some green eyes and then in the darkness yeah that's it yeah that's another weird thing for me was with the uh basically black lit contact slash fingernails like they did that for maybe 60 seconds and then they stopped See, that's a presentation difference again. See, like, that's super weird. It's like, okay, I get it. Cool. Glowy eyes, glowy nails. That's menacing mm-hmm. uh, in an 80s sort of way. And then all of a sudden it's over, and I'm like, okay, are we coming back to the glowy eyes? Is he exceptionally mad when he has the glowy eyes? Is that him and his, you know, ooh, I have an idea? Does that signify something? Oh, it was just something you thought looked cool for 60 seconds? Oh, okay, thanks. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I mean... Uh, so it's really interesting. I think this is contributing to the split yeah. notion of what's there. And I think this is also, I think when you look online, there's a cult following that's built up for this movie. Well, I'm glad because there are a lot of a lot of good things about it. Yeah, if you, yeah. you, if you go on YouTube, you're going to see a lot of people mentioning these differences. And generally speaking, if you watch only the American version, you're not going to come away with the best of reactions. Mm-hmm. And I think this is what the critics in America... Saw for the first time. Yeah. Right. That's yeah. why they gave it a 36%. Mm-hmm. Ebert is saying like, hey, A does mm-hmm. A and plus D plus F doesn't equal... A, that's not... That's yeah. the, the alphabet's not complete here, guys. It does not lead you to M. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. And so I think uh, things go together better in the director's cut. Having said that, is it a strong story even when it's all put together, Meredith? Like, because it's not... I could have used sort of a, a more solid through line in the whole thing mm-hmm. um it seemed like you know the guy that um, ridley scott worked with i don't remember his name but he was an american novelist who specialized in fairy tales and they were trying to piece together a story from all these different um pieces of folklore particularly celtic mysteries that have forest people in them and things like that so there's a lot of picking one thing from this story and one thing from another story and it doesn't come together as well as it could yeah william hortzberg was his name mm-hmm. yeah. and uh yeah we'll go into a little more on him later but you're right it, it, it they had to create their own story and i think they were coming from uh, a standpoint of obviously focusing on the visuals yeah and i think they kind of thought oh the story it's a fairy tale these things have you know it's an arc and it's basic mm-hmm. and we'll stick to the template you know but i think there's more there's more to it than that. I think I think the story just needed to be thought through and compressed mm-hmm. better because yeah. it's my understanding there was way too much story. Yes. And it would have been like three movies or whatever. Yeah. But that being said, I could have used a little bit more backstory about Lily and Jack 
and then you know the rest yeah. of the world do they even know that this dark being lives underground are they even aware of it so i'm not at all shocked that i had that issue now that if you're still saying the director's cut still could have used a little bit more if you start chopping on a movie that already doesn't have the strongest of plot lines in the first place and come up with basically what the u.s version was then you slap on an 80 cent uh soundtrack to it score um specifically to cater to the masses and then make this thing look like a kid's movie when it's clearly not supposed to it is not yeah it's not rated. it's that, not even rated it's like just this nr on the back mm-hmm. that that sums up basically one of the most train wreckiest train wreck scenarios you could think of for a movie Yep, it is a train wreckity train wreckerson, as you're saying. But that's really interesting, and I'm glad you did see it because that that perspective that you're coming from, I think, is being represented through that, and that's yeah. interesting because I I didn't know there were all these versions until I started studying mm-hmm. it after I watched it. And Meredith did me a huge favor and handed me the right version. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, I typically do like I, I will watch a director's cut if that's the main one available. Like if we ever did Apocalypse Now. Now, granted, I know there's a director's cut and a director's cut of the director's cut um, of a movie like that, sort of like Blade Runner, where there's so many different versions of it out there. But usually, I'll pick the director's cut to watch first, and I'm actually a little surprised that they didn't give that option. You know how typically, if you click on a movie or search for a movie, it'll say Legend, Legend director's cut you know legend extended version whatever uh it was surprising that that was basically it like when i was searching for this movie to watch it on like rental stuff it was just legend like i did not see a a grand list of variations that i could pick from well that's usually how it goes usually you watch the standard version and for america that was the standard version and that's part of what led to maybe some initial bad reviews and bad reviews at the time led to bad sales and that's i think all goes together but even to Meredith's point, though, I think there's not a strong sense of motivation for what why these characters are doing what they're doing. Like you said, there's not a strong backstory to really right. give notion of what Jack and Lily are or laying a little bit of groundwork ahead of time. So yeah. like you had like a text crawl at the beginning of yours, Friday, which... Yes, I did. Which was bad, too. <laughs> that was... Whereas we did not. like they... Didn't we have a little bit of something... Uh, it's hard it's to, separate, it's to separate the two in your mind. Yeah, darkness narrates. Yeah, okay. Like, um, yeah. you know, and that's all there is on that one. And then you meet the characters and you kind of try to pick it up where you go along. But, uh, yeah, there's no sense of the world they're in. There's no sense of the princess that can't be with this guy. So mm-hmm. the ending kind of hits you from nowhere. It's just like, wait a minute, we don't have a happy ending here on this one. So yeah. I almost want to take Fry's happy ending. And, and put it on and the put, director's put, put cut. On the director's cut. I still feel like there was a better version of this movie that's like mm-hmm. a composite mm-hmm. uh, version in here somewhere. I don't even. I don't even necessarily need the happy ending. Like I'm not, you know, dead set on that being a thing. It was just when you had as cookie cutter as the U.S. version came out, like having the happy ending almost seemed perfunctory at that point. Like, yeah, of course, right off in the sunset. Uh huh. Yep. Yeah, I yeah could have called it. Okay. Now, uh, Brian, why don't you give us a little bit of a cast rundown? All right. So we start off with Tom Cruise as Jack, Mia Sarah as Lily, Tim Curry as Darkness, David Bennett as Gump, Alice Platon as Blix, Billy Barty as Screwball, Cork Hubbard as Brown Tom, Peter, Peter O'Farrell as Pox, 
Kieran Shaw as Blunder, Annabelle Lanyon as Una, Robert Picardo as Meg Mucklebones, and Tina Martin as Nell. Yeah. Meredith, any interesting notes in the cast? Well, I thought and kind of an interesting thing was that Tom Cruise's hair was so long in this movie. I'd never seen it that long, and I read that he, at the time, had an aversion to cutting his hair, and really Scott thought it made him look like a forest dweller. So that could have been instrumental in him getting that part. A very groomed forest dweller, but yes. yes, yes. Uh, actually, uh, <laughs> the hair looks good on him. He can pull it off. But uh, he had to cut it off right away for Top Gun, I think, because that's the same hair. Oh, yeah. I, I thought that Tom Cruise was an interesting choice for Ridley Scott. I know he does tend to list toward kind of handsome up-and-comers in certain number of his films, but I feel like Tom Cruise is the... This is the only time where I felt like his main character didn't really match his style. Hmm. Okay. And I'm a, I'm a Tom Cruise fan, at least film-wise. I just didn't think that Tom Cruise in this type of movie fit. Okay. Well, Jim Carrey, Johnny Depp, and Robert Downey Jr. were all considered for the role of Jack. But Meredith, mm-hmm. would you want to see any of any of these other guys in here? I, the only one I would have been okay with is Johnny Depp. Because he's got that sort of free-spirited quality that I think would be necessary for this. I think Robert Downey wouldn't have been quite right. Especially at this point in his career, I yeah. might add. Yeah. yeah, he was the, the, the smoking, drinking college student that's cynical and... Kind of a jerk. I think know. he was not light yeah. light of heart enough for this at the time. Yeah, and I don't right. think this is a... This carry shouldn't be in a movie like this, I don't think. Also, especially no. at this part of his career. Yeah. I mean, yeah, he's probably too tall also with all the other, you know, hmm. smallish actors in this movie. He's probably too big. <laughs> that might have helped Tom Cruise too. You know, it's interesting. Tom Cruise, uh, when he got the role, removed a lot of dialogue from his character and wanted to take a more silent, I guess, uh, again, coming from the forest, kind of like staring. He makes a lot of these prolonged faces where he's kind of looking at you. And honestly, I like to think that some of these faces are what Michael Myers looks like on the other side of his mask. (laughs) (laughs) And like, they're very long, blank stares. I'm almost like, Ridley... Get off the face. He's not changing it. He's not expressing enough emotion. Yeah. <laughs> Tell him to do that again. And so there's there's these, I think, maybe wooden moments that come from Tom Cruise mm-hmm. on this one. And maybe he shouldn't have gotten rid of so much dialogue because there's story in dialogue. And maybe he should have kept those lines in there. That's true. I think that maybe some of the logic behind that was somebody who lived the way he lived wouldn't have had much interaction with other people and probably wouldn't speak as much as somebody like Lily who's, you know, out and about and sees everybody and is used to that sort of thing. Uh, At the very beginning of this movie, when she was talking to him and he just kind of kept, like, glancing or uh, staring at her, Mm -hmm. I was like, stop talking to him. He doesn't speak English. He's a woods person. And they started talking. I was like, nuh-uh. How do you know that language? It is almost like, I have this effect on you. I don't want to screw it up by talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, um, yeah, I, that was one of the ones that kind of thought. But, I mean, this is early in Cruise. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is not like a huge vehicle for him in a way. Like, again, he would go on to become a big star after Top Gun. But, I mean, he'd come off risky business on this one, so he wasn't nobody. But at the same time, this wasn't like Tom Cruise just goes and gets the right vehicle for him and or they adjust it to his mm-hmm. strengths. Because, again, I think Cruise is better with big reactions, like in Jerry Maguire or something like that where he goes big. Or A Few Good Men, 
where like he goes with these big emotional reactions and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Subtle facial physical acting. I don't think that's his game. Yeah, that could have been more of a Johnny Depp thing if he'd gotten that part. He probably could have sure carried that. I see on. that? No, it's mm-hmm. true. It's a good point. Cruz unfortunately loses his dad during this movie, so that's a hard thing for him to deal with at this time. I don't think the sadness that he would have gone through that shows in this, but uh, just a a challenge. This movie was very challenged uh, with lots of setbacks. And director Ridley Scott was inspired to pick Tim Curry as Darkness after seeing the Rocky Horror Picture Show. Meredith, if you saw the Rocky Horror Horror Picture Show, which uh, we just covered a little bit earlier Mm -hmm. this year, Brian and I did, did you see anything that made you go, man... That guy needs to play Darkness. Well, I'd I have to see that all the way through. I haven't seen Rocky Horror Picture Show all the way through, but I think it's his face. He's just got such a manipulative kind of demeanor. Yeah. E- even his drawl is kind of like, oh, like everything <laughs> that Tim Curry does. Like I can imagine having dinner with Tim Curry and at the actor. I'm saying. And just being like, hey, Tim, what'd you do last night? Well, I went down and... Ah, you're planning something evil. He, he does evil so well. Yeah. Uh, I'm with you. Interestingly enough, Richard O'Brien, who plays Riff Raff, the, which, if you're not Rocky Horror Picture Show uh, savvy, he's the butler kind of guy that has, like, a hunchback and is bald on top of the long blonde hair and has these dark inset eyes. He's, a, mm-hmm. he's one of the uh, featured people in Rocky Horror Picture Show. He was considered, initially, as uh, Meg Mucklebones. Which probably would have been good for that. Yeah. So, fun alternate casting there. Ridley Scott discovers Mia Sarah in the casting session, and he was impressed with her good theatrical instincts, and uh, so she was young. And uh, where do we know Mia Sarah from later? Uh, Ferris Bueller's Day Off. Yeah, I, I, I didn't put it together right away. Yeah. I kept saying, she looks familiar. And also the, um, the Birds of Prey TV show. She played Harley Quinn. Oh. Yeah. Did not know that. Yeah. I don't think I realized that. Yeah, uh, she's Ferris Bueller's uh, girlfriend. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The voice of Gump, which Gump is a hard name once you've seen Forrest Gump. Like, yeah. I, I kept thinking, I thought the, I, this movie comes out way before that, mm-hmm. but I still kind of has like, my name's Gump, just Gump. <laughs> <laughs> like, like, I couldn't stop thinking. Yeah. <laughs> voice of Gump was uh, redubbed, and it was Alex Platon who plays Blix. So the croony yeah. who's, uh, you know... Uh, or the henchman, I should say, mm-hmm. for Darkness, also does the voice of Gump. And I thought that was a really fun thing. Did you like, Meredith, how they had a young actor but then dubbed over a whole different voice? I thought it was a little disturbing, but I think it works because Gump, I think, is intended to be a person who, you know, he's an elf, he looks very young, but he is in reality maybe hundreds of years old. Or You get that impression, so I think the voice worked well. I liked it. Yeah, I thought that was... An unexpected turn from when you met him. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know. There, there's a lot of dubbing in this movie, which usually works against it, but this is one that I liked. I don't know. Brian, I remember you're pretty hard on dubbing. Did that affect your enjoyment of this? You know, only when I notice it so heavily that I'm like, okay, you're actually damaging my experience here, and I didn't really have it too bad on this one. Okay. Uh, there were just moments. Mm-hmm. Usually they're the more intense moments, like when Lily's crying in the storm. Oh, I didn't realize that. Um, yeah. Like there's one of those where it's like, this is mm-hmm. very dubbed. Mm-hmm. And uh, there's a reason for that. I'll get into that as we talk about the set design here a little bit. But um, did you? what do you think about Ridley Scott as a director, Meredith, on this movie? Well, I think I think he did well on this movie. The, the only 
criticism I would have of him would be the screenplay that it needed to have a you know a stronger thread through the whole thing. But I think he achieved this very uh, dreamlike atmosphere really well. And in a lot of his movies, um, you can almost sort of follow the road of where you think the story is going to go. And this, you you literally never know what's going to happen next. You, you have no ab- ability to predict it or to be prepared for what's happening. So I liked that part of it. Hmm. Okay. I think that he just dug in on the visuals so well. Mm-hmm. But uh, yeah. I think I think you're right. His discipline as a storyteller, which is so weird, because yeah. this movie is his fourth movie, and it's coming after the Duelist Alien, which is masterfully made, mm-hmm. and Blade Runner, and then 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 there comes this with mm-hmm. Legend. I just don't see where that tight ship discipline that mm-hmm. he had, like he had the visuals, he had the the feeling, and he had the storytelling. Yeah. I think a little bit of it is intentional because you see a lot of things happening at once. And it's sort of like a nightmare where you jump, your mind jumps from one thing to the other thing to the other thing, and you don't know quite how that's happening. So I think some of it is intentional, but not all of it. Uh huh. I feel like he was almost going for a hat trick where he had success with Alien, which is your typical spacefaring sci fi fantasy piece. Then you have Blade Runner, which kind of has that cyberpunk crime noir piece and then he's like okay now i'm gonna knock the socks off of a fantasy piece and it was like yeah maybe i should stick to sci-fi well i mean he goes in a lot of different directions uh over time i mean thelma louise then comes a little bit down the line i mean uh gi jane wasn't necessarily the biggest one for him hannibal was i think i still think hannibal Mm -hmm. was his biggest miss well, I would say that most of, well, yes, that wasn't a good movie, but most of the 2000s, and you can kind of see it leading up to in the in the 90s, like, what everybody wanted were these true or true-ish stories. And that's where you got, like, the Black Hawk Down, uh, Gladiator, although not a true story, you know, it's trying to be factually relevant in its storytelling. G.I. Jane, of course, too. American Gangster, you know. So it's like, yeah, it's all fiction, but it's also like real world could have been true, I guess is what I'm saying. I know Meredith's least favorite Ridley Scott movie. I bet oh, you I yes. know. Oh, yes. I was trying to hold it in, but I, you can I, say it. I'm not a fan of Gladiator. Oh, I thought it was going to say Robin Hood with Russell Crowe. No, well, they're <laughs> sort of neck and neck, but they're both... Wow. I'm not big fans of. Wow. Okay, I, I knew you hated the Robin Hood movie, mm-hmm. but I didn't know about the Gladiator. So you're really looking forward to Gladiator 2, I guess. Oh, no. There, that's not real, is it? I hope not. Oh, it is. It is. I don't understand things about what mm-hmm. you're saying. How is that possible? <laughs> it has been announced. I don't know. Ridley Scott, Gladiator 2. We got to get off Gladiator. <laughs> yeah, it's okay. Yeah. yeah back, back, on, uh, back on Legend, though. So as mentioned, though, novelist William Horchberg and Ridley Scott actually watched John Coteau's Beauty and the Beast from 1946. I've never seen this one. Have you? Yes. It's very good. Oh, yeah? Yeah. So they, they said that that was the inspiration for them to do this. Mm-hmm. Do you see that in this movie? I do because there is a in, in that Beauty and the Beast, there's a lot of these very deep blacks where you can tell they didn't have the means to build a complete set but you would see a little bit of it and then you would just see black and there's a lot of that in legend there's a particular scene where lily is running through these columns and they do a lot with motion 
and it being very slow and then sometimes, you know, having kind of a jarring motion to it. And that happens also in Beauty and the Beast. So do you feel like it set the visual inspiration for yeah, this movie? Yeah, I think so. Did there Was there a tone that was like this movie? Like, was it that dark? Yeah, it was. Huh. And so there was no singing candlestick? With a French accent? No, the the um, the moving furniture in Beauty and the Beast, this black and white one, is actually very disturbing, and it's a lot like um, a haunting, it, maybe, or something like that. No, it's a lot. It's a lot like the moving statues in Legend. Oh, okay. Yeah, where you see them, you're not quite sure it's happening, but then after a few seconds, you're unnerved because there's definitely in inanimate things moving. Hmm. Now, Brian, I know you like dark movies. Did, this, did the dark tone of this make you happy? Basically, this movie picked up a whole bunch once they got out of the dungeon. Wait, once they got out of the dungeon? Yeah, yeah. Basically, everything that happened in the in the last, call it, 25 minutes of my of the U.S. filming. I wasn't aware there was that much afterwards. Like they, mm-hmm. they were in the dungeon for a long time or underground. Well, you might be thinking that the dungeon, the jail. Getting, uh, excuse me, get it, getting out of the cell. Oh, out of yeah. the, okay, yeah. sorry, yeah. Adam. Getting yeah, out of the, out of the everything that yeah. happens after getting out of the cell. Okay. That's actually a fair point in ours as well. Yeah. We'll, we'll call it the Priz Kitchen. Sure. <laughs> uh, by the way, the Americans get uh, a little extra torture in their dungeon, which, uh, like, people, oh, people getting case? chopped up yeah. and stuff like that and pulled apart and stuff in there. So even though they're making it, I guess, more for kids, they're making it less for kids? Again, there's just no consistency with yeah. what they wanted to do with that American version. I had a I had a really good laugh at the beginning of this movie where uh, they're first introducing the darkness and you've got the ogre and he is very lacklusterly beating a guy on a table with a club. Cause yeah, I don't remember. Funny. Yeah. He... It, it, it's, it, it's, it's like it, he's like the torture would have been like, dude, can you like really hit me so I can die sooner or something? But the <laughs> ogre is hitting him so slowly that I'm like, are you like tenderizing like what are you doing <laughs> it's like he's hitting him in the chest and his arms and head like he's gonna up. put him in and that he... in that pot with the crust like they put... right yes. well, even and the ogre even, pies but even the cries but even the cries are like ah, uh, ah, uh, ah. Uh. like you can tell it's just like it, it was like watching wwe or something where you just know it's fake and like the the feet go like three inches away from the guy and he flies backwards. Now like, you've upset Chad. Seems... <laughs> <laughs> he loves his wrestling. <laughs> now you've upset him. This whole movie is upsetting Chad, but now now you've crossed the line. <laughs> um, uh, there's also a strong influence of Disney animated classic visuals in this, which I thought was interesting. They called out Fantasia, Bambi, Snow White. Meredith, are there any things that you see from these classic, even though they're more for children, mm-hmm. kinds of moments? Well, I think those speak more to the um, light and airy scenes in the beginning, oh, where okay. we're in the forest and people are, you know, really sort of running around and everything looks really bright and sort of serene. And you've got like the seven dwarves house. I see that with Bambi and I see that with Snow, 
Snow White, yeah. And they're really big on like uh, dandelion uh, mm-hmm. fuzz floating through the air. Like there's mm-hmm. either feathers or like uh, pollen just yeah. flowing everywhere. As somebody with allergies, I'm sitting there going like, I'm not holding up well in this opening scene. I mean, yeah. this or, look... Or bubbles. There are bubbles here. Bu- yeah, bubbles I'm okay yeah. with, but I am sitting there just like, man, this looks like an Allegra or uh, like a Claritin. <laughs> sorry, like a Claritin commercial or whatever. Breathe like, free again once the darkness is vanquished. That's why Tom Cruise can't have facial expressions. He's so congested. Like, <laughs> so while i was looking up this movie i just was trying to get a feel for how other people felt about it and just do our usual thing so when i typed into google legend 1985 because you really have to put that in because if you do legend film it gives you the uh, the gangster one one of the popular searches like call it top six popular searches was how much glitter was used in legend that's an interesting question yeah (laughs) i was like well that's valid now, Brian, I know you're a video gamer. Some people believe this is the inspiration for uh, Shigeru Miyatu's classic game, The Legend of Zelda. I, I'm i not as quick to go on this, but Mary watched this. She's a huge Legend of Zelda game series fan. Are you, are you throwing in with that? Do you think this influenced Zelda? I can see some parallels, but I mean, anything can... Like, you could see a car driving down the road and be like, oh, I like how they sculpted that door. I'm going to make a Fast and the Furious franchise. (laughs) Okay. You know what I mean? Like, anything can influence somebody in a very minor way to having a a much bigger thought. So, sure, I guess if you want to go with him as a a, a Link kind of character, I I could see it. Um, You know, one with the forest, you know, Decoutry kind of stuff going on. I get it, but I wouldn't have watched this movie without you bringing it up and say, oh, this reminds me of Zelda. Yeah, I mean, he's got the hair for it, and he, uh, he has a tunic with no pants on, mm-hmm. um, and he has a sword. Those, yeah. These three things are true. But he, it is a, a classic sort of fairy story type of character that you would see, even like Peter Pan or some of the representations of the god Pan, you know, wearing leaves and leather and all that stuff. Yeah. Now, one thing I thought was interesting was the director's cut, I think, is more challenging. They they kind of go more into... Lily represents kind of a, an aspect of temptation and like mm-hmm. kind of like this Garden of Eden aspect of like, I'm going to touch the unicorn. No, don't touch the unicorn. I'm going to touch the unicorn. Bad things will happen. Don't touch the unicorn. I'm touching the unicorn. And then... And then later on, she kind of, uh, there's more involved with the uh, darkness in her, and she's kind of tempting him. And so she's a bit of like, she's like luring him in, is like kind of saying, she's, like, I'm going to go along with she's this. She's tricking him, though. She tricked yeah. me, actually. Yeah. I didn't know she, I wish the director had kind of let us know that she was in control of what was going on, because when she turns into this dark figure, I was like, oh, so she's evil now? I, yeah, I, I, got I thought that was kind of the point that, that we don't know and you know closer to the end we hear jack saying that you know i'll, I'll always trust you he just has to go with it yeah see that was the thing now, she, see she he really say, he like, really shouldn't <laughs> <laughs> he really should like yeah. jack, pan, pantsless jack needs to like let her go she's dangerous yeah gump's just like you can't help her just be glad she's alive <laughs> i was like oh well he's very wise him and his little thimbles of beer <laughs> yeah. i mean yeah. this guy makes a lot of sense to me 
And by the way, that's another big difference. You didn't get the angry gump in the American version. In the director's version, he gets really angry mm-hmm. that Jack and like is uh, like threatening him and demands that he solve a riddle. Otherwise, I, well, who knows what would have happened to him? But he solves the riddle and then uh, he throws a temper tantrum. You got none of the uh, the mean side of Gump, Brian. Oh well. Till next time. Yeah. Next time I'll get it. Ridley Scott also admits that he made some changes to reduce things because of the long movie. He said. Uh, attracted the pot-smoking attendees who were enjoying the visuals but then would end up laughing on the uh, two-hour, 30-minute long movie. And he uh, wanted to trim things down, so it went down to an hour and 38 minutes. That's mm-hmm. how big of a cut it was. Yeah, I uh, think it makes sense. I mean, you don't want people giggling in the movie theater. It's great because they, I remember Stanley Kubrick's 2001 A Space Odyssey. Uh, people were coming and buying tickets over and over again so they could mm-hmm. come and drop acid and watch it. Like the whole last third of the <laughs> yeah. movie, they wanted to just have like a, a psychedelic experience. Mm-hmm. If that gets people to buy your tickets, then heck yeah, sure. Yeah. Come see the pretty colors and the uh, and the great mm-hmm. orchestral music. I See, I, I'm, I, I totally agree with you. I'm like, you know... Bring me your stoned, your high, your tripping balls. Meredith, where was this movie filmed? So it was filmed at the Pinewood Studios, which is the studio that's frequently used for James Bond. Yes. Yeah. I'm a huge James Bond fan. (laughs) Yes. It is on the 007 soundstage. So most recently it had come off of, I guess, The Spy Who Loved Me. And what, what happened? There was a fire. So, uh, you know, all of the massive sets, the forest sets that were built in there, everything went up in flames. There was smoke pretty high up, so production was shut down, and they I think they only lost three days or something, uh, but they had to get all the sets rebuilt and shoot somewhere else for a period. That's astounding, because yeah. when you really stop and think about it, I was watching the movie, and I was sitting there thinking... Something's so turned up. What is it? What filter do they have on this camera that makes this forest seem so surreal? And the answer was glitzy. Well, yeah, but the answer is it's all constructed. Yeah. And well, there's real plants in there, but they're orchestrated and arranged in a way that everything looks very packed full and very, you know, uppy downy. There were were in the features there, I was seeing where they were cutting like those tree trunks and stuff like that were out of like uh, styrofoam and plastic and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. They were gluing leaves on to to things. And I mean, I couldn't believe how much work went into this. Yeah, but it it looks wonderful though. It does. It looks more like a fantasy Mm -hmm. than than a real forest, which I think was what they were going for. They just didn't have the control they needed to out in the woods. Mm -hmm. Like they found some spots, but they were just too dark. Lighting was too inconsistent. Sound Mm -hmm. was hard to control. Ironically, when they built this forest and stuff like that, birds kept coming in this large building, and there were so many birds tweeting and stuff mm-hmm. like that, and the there was this sound issue, and that is why they're dubbed. Oh. Yeah. Mm. So, that I didn't realize, but that's very interesting that, you know... It was a it loud was, process. It was so enticing that the birds came in. Exactly. Exactly. But yeah, it, they were just 10 days from done, though, when the, oh, when wow. the fire happened. So, mm-hmm. And then, unfortunately, they were going to do a view to a kill so uh james bond had uh, a little bit of a delayed start they were trying to figure out like well oh occasionally burn down her home yeah thanks for that ridley scott brian what did you think about the set design though it's pretty impressive it is um you know i like animatronics i like the puppetry you know we've talked about how that for our generation is better i think that's true of sets too if if you really you know, are into your craft, into what you're doing. I like a good built fantasy set. It's one of the things I really enjoyed about the Lord of the Rings movie is, you know, 
taking a chunk of New Zealand and really making it Middle Earth the way they did. So you really go a long way when you put that kind of effort into these sort of things with me. Yeah, I, I somehow, I mean, obviously, when you watch something like The Revenant, and you see how beautiful nature really is and how powerful it is, and to, what you, to your point also, like Lord of the Rings, mm -hmm. uh, there is no substitution for that. But on the other hand, I also know that they didn't have that level of control, uh, I guess, in the 80s maybe, or filmmaking just hadn't gone that direction. And when you consider that everything is constructed, it's it's very impressive. Well, and I think it's a lot easier now with the type of equipment that people have to go out and do something than it was in the 80s. Yeah, could be yeah. true. Yeah, and in fairness, mm -hmm. Revenant's like an Oscar award-winning yeah. of like, I filmed this whole thing with only natural light, and mm -hmm. like, I mean, just like, so it's a huge yeah, accomplishment. Yeah, cameras are, are better now. You have a little more control. That yeah. You know, stuff is more lightweight than it used to be. So Good point. Yeah. Uh, the bear in this movie was more realistic though, than the one that we were having it. <laughs> that's true, because that's a <laughs> that's real bear. Yeah. Uh, yeah, for sure. Meredith, what did you think about the uh, set design? I have somebody who's uh, in the creative filming side of the world there. I thought it was very interesting. It was real enough to sort of trap you in, but it's also extreme enough that you want to keep looking at it. You know, you, you always are afraid you're going to miss something in this movie, so you just keep looking, and I think that's that's not something you see all the time. Yeah, yeah. Ridley Scott worked with Alan Lee initially as the visual consultant for the set design. He sketched a lot of the environments and kind of worked in the beginning. However, Scott eventually replaced Lee with Ashton Gordon, and uh, he was the production designer who he had wanted for both Alien and Blade Runner, but hadn't gotten to work with him until now. And so... Uh, Scott hired Gordon because he knew all the pitfalls of shooting exteriors on a soundstage and knowing, or sorry, knowing how to do this. And mm -hmm. uh, I got to say, Gordon, it's not his fault the story doesn't function because Gordon gets in straight A's in yes, my book. Yes, he definitely does. Now, similarly, what do you think about the wardrobe, Brian, like in the, in the makeup on this, both? Uh, both is very well done. Uh, I think this is part of where the, uh, the glitter comic came in. Uh, but I, the only, just get the man some pants. <laughs> like all he had to do is chop a leg off super easy that armor is going to do nothing if he hits you in the leg <laughs> well the fairy led him to the armor and she kind of had a thing for him that's because true because tom cruise oh, yeah. she, she did not give him she any removed, pants i think she, she removed, removed the pants, pants ahead of time i think i think one of the things that got cut <laughs> out was, was like okay great i've got a sword a shield a tunic where's the pants oh you don't need it don't worry about it there's no there's no pants don't worry about the pants. I feel like I need some pants. You don't need them. <laughs> That's my terrible fairy voice, by the way. <laughs> Rob Bolton oversaw the makeup. He's a bit of a uh, sci-fi uh, hero. He was responsible for the makeup and the howling, as well as John Carpenter's The Thing. So uh, we're at an interesting time in film history that I, as Brian particularly mentioned, I love this era because special effects, in terms of doing it the real way, are approaching their peak. And yeah. CGI has not entered the picture. So this late 80s, mid-80s mid to early 90s, you're doing everything real. And then come, I don't know, 93, I don't know, it's 93, 95, by that time, CGI is starting to make some bad early decisions. Like, I mean, like, if you watch the movie Blade or something like that, you go like, oh, no, CGI, what have you done? Yeah. It takes a long time before the CGI gets better enough to the point where we like it now. Yeah, well, I particularly noticed it with the character Blix, the goblin, uh -huh. because 
when I saw it for the first time, I was kind of blown away by it because I didn't realize that makeup was that good before Lord of the Rings because she looks like a character who could have come out of this movie and come into, you know, a horde of goblins in Lord of the Rings and she wouldn't look out of place. Yep. Did you know uh, who Blix was based on the facial, uh, like, inspiration? Oh, yes. I did read that Keith Richards yes. was the inspiration. <laughs> oh, that's that. brutal. And you can see it oh. a little bit around the eyes oh. and the cheekbones. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and uh, going back to the time with Johnny Depp, uh, he ends up becoming a, an influencer on how Johnny Depp portrays uh, the sun-damaged or brain-damaged pirate. Jack Sparrow. Uh, Jack Sparrow. So... Yeah. Keith Richards has inspired uh, at least Jack Sparrow and as well as Blix. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's, when you, that's brutal. If, if you do a side by side, you can tell yes. somebody in the makeup yes, room did a good job. Uh, said like, hmm, let's, what if Keith Richards were blue and a little bit longer nose? <laughs> <laughs> With the exception of Tom Cruise and Mia Sarah, all the other principal actors spent hours each morning getting extensive makeup applied they had over a dozen prosthetic pieces applied to each of their faces they had an enormous makeup crew grafting on uh, prosthetics and each morning and trying to make sure that as they move their faces they move with them and i thought that was one of the coolest things about this because it doesn't just look good like look at the uh, the little people's makeup and stuff like that like I, you don't just sit there and go like man I, I feel like i'm looking at makeup like it moves with their it looks face. like a person yeah yeah. And how good was Tim Curry, Brian? Uh, I mean, I you will never hear me dismiss a, a Curry performance, no matter how I felt about the movie. No, but the look it of is, him. Yeah, it is so much fun watching this guy work. And his face sculpting, like, if there's anything that I knew about this movie beforehand, it was the the mantle that Tim Curry wore for it. Yeah, I mean... He took over five hours each day to get into makeup for this one. And he had to soak in a bathtub for an hour to get those horns off of his, but like, head. Didn't he accidentally take the take it off too soon or something and it just tore stuff up? Yeah, yeah. tore his skin. Yeah. And then they had to, like, shoot around it because, they, like, his face was messed up. <laughs> yeah. and, and so, uh, but that was, that was what Ridley Scott was doing. Like, he was keeping him in the darkness early mm-hmm. on. He liked the fact that even though we didn't like the fact that Tim hurt himself, but yeah. um, he liked the fact that we didn't see him for yeah. longer. And that that is a great move. So Rob Button thought uh, Curry needed to look like half bull and uh, half menacing bull and half sexy. So uh, what a wild creature. I mean, I actually got to say it. I mean, it looks better than Hellboy even. Yeah, it does. It looks more realistic than Hellboy. Yeah. yeah. And I like I liked it. I, uh, I, I like Hellboy. So the horns place a strain on his neck, too. Like, cause they, they're oh, I have no doubt. Yeah. I can't yeah. imagine how whole, how heavy that was. They they eventually made him some lighter, hollow fiberglass ones, but uh, initially it was a uh, it was it was a weight on his neck. So yeah, Curry went through a lot to do this one, and I'm glad he did it because this is just one of those nice little things. Uh, there's mixed reviews on this movie, but I think that uh, Curry is solid through this one. Oh yeah, he definitely is. Yeah. And the voice, too, how they uh, modulated his voice down. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Not quite recognizable as just being Tim Curry, but very, very um, uh, ominous. He sounds a little bit like a creature, also. When you hear his voice, you're pretty sure that he's not human. Yeah. Hey, by the way, who is he talking to when he's, like, talking to his dad? And, like, there's this high-pitched voice. He's like, no, you must woo her. 
I think it is his father, some other entity that is... Father of Darkness. Yeah. Where is his dad? Like, where's this voice coming from? Is it one of the statues? I've interpreted it as being sort of in the ether that wherever he talked that thing would hear him but i, I thought it was know. odd that his dad was this high the void it was like, it was like mm-hmm. is like is your dad a mouse <laughs> i don't know yeah like, he's got this really deep mm-hmm. scary voice i figure uh, daddy darkness would also be deep deep yeah. and yeah. also sinister like james earl jones should be doing that oh that would have been interesting yeah again we talked about how pretty this movie was mm-hmm. meredith did you have any other Uh, things that you wanted to point out well i particularly liked uh nell's cottage because it just seemed so ordinary we have everything in this movie that's very sort of fantastical but that seemed like a place where you could actually or somebody could actually live and it it still does work within this whole fantasy scenario so i liked that Mm -hmm. i think this movie's better digested when you know you're getting in for a visual experience all the environments made me happy. The fairy tale beginning where everything's like, this is this looks like a, a very inviting forest. Mm-hmm. And the winter scenes, while the story might not, maybe this is where the story's at its weakest, the middle. Yeah. I thought the winter scenes were really well shot anyway. Oh, they were. I yeah. like that scene where he has the torch in the mm-hmm. in, at, at, at night. I like the fire scenes where Lily's like upset. Uh, the contrast and the lighting and the darkness and the blues of the snow. That was great. The swamp mm-hmm. was really good, too. And, um, I mean, I definitely got a never-ending story vibe off of that. I mean, yeah. uh, that, I have a feeling that that's the same swamp that Atreyu trudged through in the Swamp of Sadness. It does look very similar. It's yeah. so sad. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, the prison, I will agree, there was something about the story that's to blame, but it's, it is a foreboding prison. Yes, it definitely is. And I loved the uh, underground world. I mean, it mm-hmm. kind of reminded me of Lord of the Rings, uh, the mines. Of, the mines uh, of Moria, yeah. Yeah. I, straight A's all across the board, and they handle all those environments well. Now, whether the story handled the transition of those things or well or not, like, mm-hmm. uh, Mary at one point even thought she, like, I missed something. And I was like, no, you didn't. And she, we were wound. It's just like, they run from a blizzard into a swamp. She goes, I don't understand what's happening here. I, yeah. You're fast forwarding through something. I promise you, I'm not. <laughs> and uh, and that's, that's those transitions. It'd be like if Lord of the Rings was just on top of a mountain and the next minute they're in the mines. <laughs> it's just yeah. like. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. It, and, and I know that's been one of the bigger, like one of the things that they make fun of Lord of the Rings for is just the constant walking and stuff. It's like, you get so much better feel for the characters in Fellowship of the Ring than almost any movie I can name. Yeah, and also it takes a, it has a sense of struggle to it. In this case, it was almost like, you're going to need weapons. I know some. Two trees over. There's this cave. You can yeah. have all of these really special weapons. Yeah, you would think there would be more of a journey super to close. get the weapons. Yeah, yeah, like maybe I have to walk around a giant and not wake him up or something to get there. Or maybe there's a like large birds that you could get snatched up in, but that's mm-hmm. the right sword for you. Like I think Ridley Scott and uh, Hirschberg, like they said they wrote like 15 different scripts to mm-hmm. get to this point. Something got lost. Yeah. No, I, it, that's, that's, that is going to be the crux of my biggest issue with this movie is I like a movie, when you're going to go fantasy with me, I want to be a part of the venture, not just, 
you know, if you throw a, a rock across a lake and you see where it hits, that this movie is just showing you where it hits, not how it got there. That's, mm-hmm. that's a really yeah. nice way of putting it. Yeah. Flip side, you can go the other direction. We're praising Lord of the Rings for doing all of this perfectly well, but if you watch The Hobbit, there's such a thing as going too far, too, because the whole first Hobbit movie, you're just like, mm-hmm. okay, let's well, and the Hobbit begin. book is shorter than any one of the Lord of the Rings books, so that's... Yeah. Hashtag money grab. Doing more walking than they did. Yeah, hashtag money grab is yeah. a very appropriate comment. So, uh, you know, Peter Jackson got it right with Lord of the Rings, but not so much later with uh, The Hobbit. So Don't get me wrong. I still watched all three of them multiple times. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so, like, it's one of those I could point a finger and be like, I know what you're doing, and I'm going to let you. In addition to the Tangerine Dream, there's also an additional piece of the score on the American version with John Anderson of Yes. So if you're a Yes fan, there's an additional work from that as well as Brian Ferry of Roxy Music. So more 80s synth stuff for people who like that. If your name is Chad. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I'm I'm not saying you can't have it at all, but it is by far one of my least favorite methods of music yeah i don't know i feel like the never-ending story when never had any redeeming qualities until i saw stranger things and it was the humorous reference back to the uh, the never-ending story <laughs> hey man when europe comes on i still crack a grin yeah i don't know it, it, it robs it robs the moment and i think when you have fantasy give me the orchestral stuff mm-hmm. yeah so are you ready for some superlatives, Meredith. Yeah. Brian, are you ready to hand out some very prestigious awards? Certainly. All right. Meredith, give us the honor. Who is your MVP of Legend? So my MVP is the production designer, Ashton Gordon. I think he did probably the best of anybody on this movie. He did all right and no wrong. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and that's an important thing to yeah. say. Um, great choice. So help people who aren't as versed in the film world understand all that he did here. Well, so what would have been involved would be figuring out how to make what's, you know, the interior look real, but also have that fantasy quality to it. So there was a lot of, you know, in the scenes that are supposed to be exterior, there was a lot of packing full with a lot of different textures and there's real plants and fake plants and things that you wouldn't ordinarily have like glitter floating in the air you know some people like that some people don't but he also would have um, had to work with the lighting folks quite a lot particularly in the underground spaces you know the the scene that kind of looks like the mines of moria mm-hmm. i thought he did a particularly good job with that you know it's so simple but you have to get it right so he's so yeah. he's overseeing the physical yes. environment yes then. yeah great choice mm-hmm. i i like it brian who's your mvp uh i went pretty pretty standard on this one with tim curry i think that had i finished this movie and someone else had played that part i would have just logged on and been like guys uh <laughs> just despair okay no that's a great choice and i mean i think curry is a big part of why there is a cult following here because of his performance yes i think so yeah 
he he attracts cult followings. Rocky Horror is one of those cult movies as well. Yeah. So I just something about Tim Curry makes and, and Clue. Clue is also mm-hmm. a movie that didn't perform well in theaters and built this cult following. But so. then everybody you talk to who's seen it really likes it. Yeah. So, so if you want a cult strange. following, uh, so if you don't want to do well at the box office, but you want to have a long term cult following where people love your movie uh, over the years, get Tim Curry. That's a strange thing to want. Mm-hmm. And you know it. Three Musketeers is still one that I'll def- defend to my last breath. It can be arranged. <laughs> All for one and more for me. Yeah, uh, he was great in that, uh, for sure. All right, so uh, I'm going to go with Rob Botton. The makeup uh, was done at such a scale. Each of these actors had three different people working on them for hours <laughs> each day before they went in. Many of them are unrecognizable when they go in. I mean, Meg Mucklebones is played by a man. And, like, that looks like a puppet. And I think somebody might have to check this later, but I think it's the um, the hologram doctor from Star Trek Voyager. It is. Is it? Okay. It is, yeah. 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 Oh, I didn't realize that. That's fun. Yeah. I liked him. So more more, more on that later, mm-hmm. but yeah, for sure. Rob Botton, to me, is like the, uh, I guess, akin to Ashton Gordon was mm-hmm. for, for Meredith. Yeah. They both did all right and no wrong. And this is why I don't go with Ridley Scott, because... He's also responsible for the overseeing the visuals and overseeing this wonderful endeavor, but he's also to blame for the story. Yeah. Can't give it to you, Ridley Scott. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, best supporting actor, Meredith. I think David Bennett was my favorite, the guy who played Gump. He's good. He's really good. How and old he's, was he in this? I think he was 18. Oh, he's a little older than I would have guessed. Yeah. Okay, but, but he has that young, that young sort of, you know, I don't want to you know, bring up Peter Pan again, but he's got kind of a Peter Pan-like quality. You mean Peter Pan who has no pants? Yes. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Peter Pantsless? <laughs> uh, no, he did a great job. And they did a great job on him with the uh, lower body. Like, yes. Like, you know, looking like, you know, an animal's lower body. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. um, not to be uh, overlooked on that. Great choice. Brian, who's your best supporting? I went with Mia Sarah on this one. Uh, there is a point in this movie where I feel like she really steals it and that her back and forth with Tim Curry being the highlight of the movie for me really did something so I kind of gave it to them for that for that strong you know punch at the end I would say that she has an uneven performance because early and this is partially the story's fault because they don't have a strong development of who her character is or what her motivations are I would agree she's good in the back half of the movie but I also felt like she, I, I just, the front, the first part mm-hmm. of the movie, less so. Yeah. I, I, he is technically supporting, he's awfully high build to say this, but I'm going to say Tim Curry for my best supporting actor for all the reasons that Brian said. Mm-hmm. I mean, he's the part of this movie I will remember later for sure. Yeah. He does uh, a great job. Yeah. Hidden gem, Meredith. Um, well, I think my hidden gem is also a member of the cast and that's Annabelle Lanyon, the girl who played Una. I thought she was just Mm. so compelling, and you never knew what she was going to do. Well, she was going to not show uh, Jack where the pants were. Yeah. (laughs) She never did show Jack where the pants were. She she was somehow playing things close to the vest, and I thought she conveyed that pretty well. Yeah. Yeah. She uh, And she made a good play for Jack. She even uh, transformed into Mm. Jack's love interest or whatever. She, she She gave a good try. We lose track of her late in the movie. She's running through the column, the room with all the columns in it, mm-hmm. while Mia Sarah's character uh, Lily's running through there at the same time. 
I think she's trying to protect her, actually. Okay. There, she knows, or at least in my mind, she knows there's not much she can do, but she wants to see what's going on. I know she was, yeah, she was the information grabber, mm-hmm. and she was able to keep up with her, I guess. She wants of... to be informed. Yeah, yeah. I, I, there was, there, but then she kind of disappears. Like, she, she, like, wakes up the guy who falls asleep mm-hmm. to, to get the plates. Yeah, I think we don't see her again until the very end. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, and I again I like that character, so I kind of want to mm-hmm. I want to have that through line with, yeah. with all the members of the party. Mm-hmm. So all I'm saying is, pantsless Jack has a lot of dangerous women around him in this movie. Yeah, uh, he's uh, whether it be McMucklebones, Una, or uh, Princess Lily, the ladies like Jack in this one. That's uh, Tom Cruise definitely has that effect on the ladies. So. And they're not quite as innocent as him either in this movie. No, that's true. Yeah. So my hidden gem is going to go to Robert Picardo, who is the doctor on Star Trek Voyager, who you mentioned. He's the bald guy yeah. uh, from Star Trek, and uh, he plays Mag Bucklebones and great physical acting and voice work mm-hmm. and stuff. Uh, what a memorable character. And if you watch the American version, you're really getting robbed on this scene. Yeah. So. Okay, good to know. But I do think Richard O'Brien from the Rocky Horde Picture Show would also be good at this. Yeah, I think he would have needed less of the makeup. He, I, I know he could do some good yeah, voice work yeah. on that. So uh, that's that's a, that's a choice between, uh, you know, two great choices. Mm-hmm. So now if you had to recast somebody, Meredith, who would it be and who you're putting in their place? Well, there's one cast member I would just like to get rid of. I don't have a replacement, but it's the guy who looks like a pig. Oh, you really? <laughs> yeah, I was. I thought he didn't a fit. A whole mountain of trash. Yeah, he like didn't, whole he of didn't trash. fit in the movie. He seemed like he was out of another movie. Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles? Yes. It reminds you a little bit of uh, yeah, Rocksteady? Yeah, I think he, he fits more into that. Or Bebop, that, sorry. Bebop. In, yeah. Into that realm. Okay. Uh, yeah. All right. I, I loved the other, the third minion who was a who was a, one of the dwarves the whole mm-hmm. time. That, that yeah. was great costume work on him. I like the three of them. That's, that makes me sad. So, so you're not replacing, you're just excluding. Mm-hmm. Brian, if you had to recast somebody, who would it be? I, I just didn't like Tom Cruise's fit in this movie. If I had to, to pull from that time frame and who was popular and, and I, who I think could have played that part maybe a little differently is maybe like a River Phoenix. Oh my gosh, you just, mm-hmm. you you took the actor and replaced it with the actor I have. That's amazing. Yeah, I would have been good with oh, that. Oh, really? Yeah, that, I, yeah, River Phoenix is a little on the young side at this point. He's, he's around he's 15. 15. He's 15 at this point. But I'm okay with going younger because if you watch... Never in a story, Atreyu is quite young, mm-hmm. which yeah. he seemed old to me as when I was little when I first watched it, but now, he's, yeah. now he seems on the young side, but I'm okay with that. But he, he's old enough that you could believe he would be like the champion type of character to yes. go up against darkness. Yeah. I was kind of picturing that young Indiana Jones look. And in fairness, I don't think any female viewer is going to agree with us, Brian, on this one, so I think he's a big part of the reason... I think he's a big part of the reason why a lot of people like this movie at this part of his career. So, uh, But I, I just think there's some acting issues, and I'm not always the biggest Tom Cruise fan as an actor. I think he has good moments, and uh, he gets a lot of good movies, but I don't necessarily always think that he's awesome. And this is one of those ones where I think somebody else could have actually done it better. I think he did okay, but I do always prefer him to Russell Crowe. I'm not winning that one, but uh, uh, we got to go on to best shot. I I feel Um, like I could play like all the different on all the different teams over here because I like Russell Crowe, I like Tom Cruise. Like I, there's really not a lose for me in the uh, the uh, 
family politics over there. Okay. <laughs> uh, best shot of the movie, Meredith. I particularly like this, well, the scene where Lily is dancing with the disembodied dress and then it transforms itself onto her. I think that's, that's really a wonderful shot. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, more on that later for me, but best shot, Brian. I went with the cliff dive. Like when she drops her ring and he goes in after it, I thought that was a really cool shot. Mm -hmm. And it turns to ice too. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Unfortunate time for severe winter to hit. My best shot's going to be when Lily and Una are both running through the dark in that massive room full of columns and mm -hmm. it was very dark and the lighting was great and there was something very dreamlike yes. about that. Loved it. So Meredith already brought that up, but uh, there's another interesting moment too where she turned and there's like a forced perspective hallway mm -hmm. that... Uh, that was very surreal. Yeah. Just this, they were blowing me away with the visuals in there. And that's my best shot, that running scene. Very artistic. Best scene of the movie, Meredith. That's, that's actually a tough one. I think that it's probably going to have to be the ending for me when she wakes up and we start to feel like, you know, was this a dream? Was this not a dream? But it, it, it was like a relief. So that's why it's the best scene for really? me. Really? Oh, yeah. okay. Because yeah. she's like, it was just a dream. And she's like, no, it wasn't. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but it's it's over. Okay. Yeah. All right. But it was kind of funny. I was like, none of this bad stuff happened to you. Yeah, it did. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> um, Brian, what was your best scene? Uh, so I actually went with uh, Lily's seduction and dance. That whole stretch that led into her eventually conversing with the darkness was my, like, that was, that was it. That was the movie for me. Yeah. I'm going to follow you up on that one and just say mine specifically is the dance scene where Lily is turned into the dark version of herself. I love how the lighting keeps that dancing figure concealed and faceless. And it's this, um, it, it, you know, it's, it represents the evil that's dancing with her and she's giving mm -hmm. into the temptation of the jewelry and all of this stuff. And, and then I love that shot that you talked about, Meredith. How they turn yeah. and then she's in the yeah. dress. So well done. Yeah, they were in high form on that one. Change one thing, Meredith. If I could change one thing, it would be the through line of the story. Cause and effect would be. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I actually mine's very similar. I just, I, I need a little more causality and motivation. Mm -hmm. Like I need to understand why these characters are doing what they're doing and how one thing actually informs yeah. the next thing. Yeah. For having a novelist on board, I'm always I'm I'm very surprised, like that they didn't do that, like they didn't yeah. do better on than that. Yeah. So, maybe they should have not done that. Maybe they should have had somebody who's more better at writing a screen play or something. I think like that, that might have been helpful. Yeah. Brian, what about you? What's your change? One thing. I'm echoing what you're saying. More plot, or at least more stable plot. When, even when they ran the 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 pre-screening, you know, text at the beginning of it. Like, it just seemed like the basic cheeseburger of movies when I wanted, like, a double bacon barbecue rib burger or something like that. I thought, Meredith, as, a, as the graphic designer in you, I, might, mm -hmm. I thought you might actually go after the poster because this poster doesn't oh, seem to tell me what I... like. I think another part of the reason this movie didn't show up well because I yeah. don't think the poster sells it well. Well, it's, it's maybe intentionally vague, but that also maybe wasn't the right decision they put darkness on yeah. the poster yeah i would not have done that no I, I mean you don't see him to an hour in the director's cut but then mm -hmm. like just right there in the american version right there on this yeah. poster i would have put tom cruise with his sword and a unicorn on the poster 
and that would have been it. And no pants. Of course no pants. <laughs> no pants. Winnie the Pooh knows how to dress. <laughs> Best quote of the movie, Meredith. Well, I, I like this quote because it's just so strange and it sort of blows your mind when you hear it. Um, there's a point where Gump says to Jack something like, you be a child of the forest and not know the Gump. <laughs> it makes you wonder, like, well, has has he been watching me the whole time? <laughs> but you don't know Gump. Yeah, he's yeah. he's all knowing, but we've never seen him. Yes. I really like that. Brian, what is your best quote of the movie? Every wolf suffers fleas. Tis easy enough to scratch. Yeah, when read most of these lines when read by Tim Curry become amazing, and mine is a Tim Curry mm-hmm. line as well. So I like when darkness is. The dreams of youth are the regrets of maturity. <laughs> I like that. Now, Meredith, if you had to rate this movie on a five-star scale with half-star intervals, what would you rate Legend from 1985? And you can mm-hmm. give two separate ratings, If in, in this case, if you want to, for directors versus American cut, because you're, yeah. you're actually informed and you've seen both. You're the bridge I, that... I would give the director's cut four and a half. Okay. Not five because of the story. Some of the you know, issues there. I might give the American cut three. Yeah, that's a big yeah. difference. Yeah. yeah. Brian, now you only saw the American one, so what is your rating of this? Yeah, my my, my director's cut rating is uh, to, to be announced, but uh, I'm going to give the U.S. version a two. It probably would have been even worse had the, the movie not finished strong. Uh, but yeah, I think this is going to be a two for me. Oh, wow, okay. U.S. version, too. I only saw the director's cut, so I'm coming at it from probably the better side of this uh, equation. The story problems are big problems, and I do believe having a good story is essential to a good movie. So I I can't go too high on this one, but at the same time, this is one of the most strong visual movies I've ever seen. Mm -hmm. And I did enjoy inhabiting this world, and so I'm glad that I saw it. And because of the visual experience you get on this one, uh, I'm I'm torn. 3.5. Meredith, is there anything you'd like to plug? Oh, yes. I do have some products um, with my artwork on them on society6.com slash Meredith Gray Robson. So there's some animal pieces of artwork. Um, you can also get some retro movie roundtable stuff. Woo! So there you go. Yeah, somebody, somebody just bought like 17 shirts in one order. I yeah. don't know who you are out there, but you're our best listener ever. So. Yes. Thank you and for doing that. And it's confidential, so we don't know who... I don't know yeah. who did yeah. it, so uh, <laughs> somebody's a very dedicated fan, and we appreciate that. So uh, uh, there's some shirts walking around out there, and we, we appreciate that. So, uh, Brian, uh, want to help me pick a movie for next time? Yeah, man, let's do it. Next time, Brian, we're going to check out The Wonderful World of Quentin Tarantino. Option number one. After awakening from a four-year coma, a former assassin wreaks havoc, or sorry, wreaks vengeance on a team of assassins who betrayed her in Kill Bill Volume 1 from 2003. Option number two. From 1992, Reservoir Dogs. A simple jewelry heist goes horribly wrong. The surviving criminals begin to suspect one of them is a police informant. And from 1997, Jackie Brown is option number three. A middle-aged woman finds herself in the middle of a huge conflict that will either make her a profit or cost her her life. Uh, I'm going to go Jackie Brown on this one because I haven't seen it in a while. And yeah, I remember loving that movie. All right. Jackie Brown it is. Meredith, thank you so much for coming on the show. Oh, yes, it was great to be on again. Really liked this movie. Yeah, thanks for introducing us mm-hmm. to it. And Brian, thank you. Yeah, You're welcome, man.
Remember, all the Lords, Ladies, and Knights of the Retro Movie Roundtable, we invite you to reach out to us. We want to hear from you. Subscribe, rate, and review on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, YouTube, wherever you get your podcasts. Those reviews and subscriptions really help us. They help others find the show, and that's the best thing you can do to help the show, and it takes pretty much no time on your part. Give us a like on Facebook. We love to interact with you there. Follow us on Twitter at, at movie underscore retro. If you want to talk to us about the show, make recommendations, want to be on the show, Retro Movie Roundtable at yahoo.com is the best place to reach us through old-fashioned email. And if, uh, you know, producing a podcast is fun but not free, we invite you to support the show at Patreon at www.patreon.com forward slash Retro Movie Roundtable. Any contributions are much appreciated. We'll always put that money into making the show better. As always, thank you for listening. Be good to each other and watch more movies. Brian? Space is disease and danger wrapped in darkness and silence.